Hi, this is Dr. Natasha Falahi, and today we'll be mapping sensitivity on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important, not only because it invites us to stop and assess but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Natasha Falahi. Dr. Natasha is the sensitive doctor. She is a mind-body health expert, functional medicine practitioner, certified autoimmune coach, and multimedia artist specializing in an intuitive approach to living and healing. She helps sensitive people suffering from chronic illness and trauma connect with their intuition and inborn gifts so that they can feel at home in the world. Her approach is especially effective for people experiencing depression, anxiety, chronic fatigue, vague pain, brain fog, food intolerances, chemical sensitivities, Hashimoto's, and autoimmunity. Hello, Dr. Natasha. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is a really interesting topic because you especially define sensitivity in a unique way. It's more than just the psychological, it's the physiological, it's the intuitive. Can you bring us into your way of articulating or defining sensitivity? Yeah, definitely. So when I look at sensitivity, I mean, first of all, I really love using that word because I think people who have this experience of being sensitive have no question about it. They self-identify really quickly. But what I found is that, you know, a lot of my patient population, which started out being really autoimmune people, Hashimoto, celiac, chronic illness, chronic pain, they all seem to have this heightened sense of sensitivity throughout their entire life. And as I dug deeper, looking at functional medicine perspective of it, functional neurology, and even this psychological perspective, and even the energy body, like their energy within their body, they just had heightened sensitivity in all those realms. So, you know, I like to kind of use that word because it speaks to people in their experience as opposed to necessarily a diagnosis. But yeah, the way I look at sensitivity, there's a lot of different root causes for it. And I think some of the words, that are used in everyday language kind of can fall under this category. Like, you know, some people identify as an empath or there's actually this categorization of highly sensitive person or highly sensitive people. And then just people who also just resonate with being kind of intuitive or sometimes even the word introvert is thrown in there, but they're all actually really distinct ways of understanding a person's experience. And we can look at them 
neurologically and we can look at them biochemically and energetically. And there's actually differences like physiological differences, neurological differences in people who are having these experiences. Mm, I really love that. There's so much popping through my head while you're talking about this and thinking about myself and how I may not be seen as sensitive because I don't cry. I don't emote in the typical ways we associate with sensitivity, but I have always been considered (laughs) overly, I'm a cancer, you know, it's all about sensitivity, right? But it's really interesting how we culturally even think about sensitivity. And then when we're talking about medical intervention, we're not in a particularly sensitive arena for the most part. I mean, we don't in medicine know how to treat the highly sensitive person. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it came out of my experience because I was a patient for a very long time with a lot of mystery symptoms, a lot of chronic illness, chronic pain. And one of the diagnoses that I ended up with in my mid-20s was autoimmunity and Hashimoto's and celiac and just multiple autoimmune conditions, but you know, also having detox issues and these sort of things. So I really learned through my own healing experience, but then also as I was studying all of these fields, I started to look at it through this lens of like, how is this different for a sensitive person versus a non-sensitive person? Because for example, you know, when you talk about different foods, for example, or diets or supplements or herbs. And we can have this general idea of how they work physiologically or what they do for our biochemistry or how they might impact someone's nervous system. But we all know that like when we're working with clients, not all our clients react the same to everything that we have. So when I was going through my schooling, my education, and also my own healing journey, I started to see every time I was in a lecture or I learned a new concept, I started to kind of break that apart to be like, okay, how does this apply differently to a sensitive person in terms of the applications of it or the dosage or the threshold of that sensitive person? So it became really interesting to see those worlds collide. And then, yeah, just kind of out of my own personal experience created a system in which the way I work with sensitive people is really effective and resonates a lot more with their experience in trying to get well. I want to get to that system. I'm really excited to talk into it. And I also just want to reflect that this is my issue with protocols per se, because we all see, I'm sure you do, Dr. Natasha, the people who are coming in with like bucket loads of supplements and implementations or interventions that aren't appropriate for their body at this time and in that quantity, both in an orthomolecular lens, like the dosing, but also oftentimes we have to bring in one thing at a time, wait, see how the body works with it, start low and go slow in terms of the titration. And I just don't think that care is brought to this whole realm where we're looking at the protocols for XYZ symptom or diagnosis. Yeah, totally. Definitely. And, you know, I think it's also really interesting to see what type of applications or therapies a client is coming in with. So when I kind of do an initial assessment, one of the first things is I ask them what they've done, where they've been, who they've worked with, and also ask them in their, you know, from their perspective, what sort of things do they feel like have helped and what sort of things haven't helped or made things worse. And then I start actually separating those into two different categories. And I refer to them as the difference between yin yang medicine. So If you think about the traditional Chinese medicine symbol, 
where we have the black and the white and a little bit of each on both sides. When we think about yang energy, it's really that traditionally masculine energy, but really it's more about taking action or like you were saying, protocols or exercises or, you know, these very prescribed things that come from a place of logic, come from a place of willpower. And so I really actually start seeing how much of their approach has been this yang approach. Is it like, have they done lab testing, diet, lifestyle, supplements, protocols, exercise, like kind of the whole functional medicine realm of, you know, investigation and data. And then I contrast that with how much yin medicine they've used, which is, you know, the yin is more that feminine energy traditionally, but it's really the concepts of being receptive, being intuitive, receiving rather than doing an action, tapping way more into intuition and kind of that like innate knowledge in our body. But it's really also about kind of like opening up and receiving healing. So this is where I look at how much of the things that they've tried or that have helped them are things like body work, where they're just like laying down on a table and receiving care, energy medicine, things in terms of their mindset or spirituality, if they've done any sort of things to help process their thoughts or emotions or trauma healing, all of that sort of stuff falls under the yin approach to me. And then I look at balancing that too, because I think that everybody needs you know, a balance of that in terms of their healing journey. So if they're only tried the yang stuff and then you give them more protocols to do, it's like likely that it's just not a balanced approach for them. Mm, I really love that classification that you use right there. It's so in alignment with the work that I do and what I'm often aiming to teach. And it's a hard concept to teach. And that yin yang really helps us to define how we get out of the do and do it to people and fix them into the healing journey. And that real journey, that real hero's journey or heroine's journey that we need to be on. I want to also talk about the neurological aspects you were referring to and get to the systems because I'm so curious, but are there antecedents and triggers that make us more sensitive? Or I guess from an antecedent perspective, I'm asking, are there innate characteristics? And from a triggering perspective, are there things that might happen in our lives that would contribute to the sensitivities that you're seeing arise in practice? Yeah, that's a great question. And like I said, there's kind of these terms that are used. So empaths are people who really kind of absorb stuff around them, whether it's feelings or their environment, they can really feel what's happening in other people or like in mother earth or animals. Sometimes these overlap. You might be one or both of these or your client might be, but the highly sensitive person is the one who's actually perceiving a higher response to a stimulus. So they might be more sensitive to lights and sounds and those sort of things. And then these other terms are in there and we don't really have time to get into all the distinctions of all those, but there are like neurological and physiological differences that actually they find commonalities in these groups of people. So neuroscience and psychology are really starting to validate this, especially in the field of psychoneuroimmunology. One major area that I love kind of exploring is the insular cortex. So the insular cortex is responsible for sensory processing. So it filters and interprets that information that we take in from our senses. So smell, sound, touch, sight, taste. But it also actually gives us that interoception. So that, you know, sensation of what's going on inside of our bodies. 
So things like, are we hungry or full, cold or hot? Do we have a full bladder? And so all that stuff's getting processed in the insular cortex. And people who have higher activity in this insular cortex are, you know, presenting as more sensitive people because they're taking in a lot more information. They're interpreting a lot more from their senses externally, but also internally. And so that also speaks to their thalamus. And the the thalamus is the part of our brain that is really supposed to be the gatekeeper. It's the gating system for that information coming in. So a lot of times people who have a really open gate, they're letting in a lot of information, but this can lead to overwhelm. So, I mean, we see this maybe really obviously in children because they haven't learned tools to adapt to it. But if there's a lot of sound or noise or the clothes on their skin is like really a lot of information for them, they might start feeling overwhelmed or irritated. And a lot of that has to do with like that thalamic gating, but also that overactivity in the insula. And what's really interesting is the insula is also really involved in a lot of autonomic functions. So it really takes care of that homeostasis, physiological stability. So that's all controlled by the insula, including immune system regulation. So when you're having a lot of stress and overactivity and like spontaneous firing in these areas, you're also putting stress on other systems in the body, like the immune system. And so we find that this is a really juicy area when we start talking about sensitive people again, in particular for empaths, is that anterior cingulate cortex of this area, which processes empathy and compassion, but it also processes suffering, which is really interesting because if you think about, you know, if you go through an experience where you suffer, you often then have a lot of compassion for other people maybe going through a similar experience because they're all happening in that anterior cingulate cortex, that processing. So sensitive people are able to kind of witness the pain of others or like just kind of have experiences that are heightened in compassion, but they also have heightened experiences of suffering. And so that's also, again, high activity in that anterior cingulate cortex where by contrast, they found that psychopaths have very low underactivity in this area. Mm, This is super fascinating, Dr. Natasha. I could talk about it for hours, and it does get me thinking about the different ways in which sensitivity shows up in our practices, in ourselves, right? Because it's not going to always look the same as I referenced for myself when I'm thinking about my son, who's, you know, 21 years old, he definitely was considered to have processing issues when he was younger because he would be overwhelmed being in a room with lots going on. He would just be like a deer in the headlights. And you wouldn't think of him as a sensitive person now, but he has real discernment for words and writing and music. And he's not what we typically think of as a sensitive person, but he has, you know, issues around injustices. And I guess I just bring that up because I think we then also classify sensitivity as looking a certain way and really that empathetic, that understanding, being able to read the world way of being (laughs) is sensitive too. Yeah. And I I love that you bring that up too, because the way I've looked at it and I've classified it is there are six different types of sensitivity. And this can also lead to six different types of wounds or kind of trauma around it. Because, you know, the way I look at trauma is just any experience that gives us overwhelm, that we didn't have the tools to kind of process it, integrate it, or create meaning or understanding out of it. So, you know, something could be 
big T trauma, objectively life-threatening trauma, but there's also these little T traumas that just impact the quality of our life. And those are things that can happen over time, like just stress, bullying, emotional conflict, those sort of things. And so the six types of wounds that I'll get into really briefly, or you know, the six types of sensitivity, because once you learn about that about yourself, you can harness it as your strength rather than just kind of feel chaotically overwhelmed by it. So they're mental, emotional, physical, chemical, social, and energetic. And the mental one, you know, is really interesting to me. It's different than the emotional one because these are people who are super good at pattern recognition and their error detection systems in their brain where they can like see disruptions or changes. I'm raising my hand. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I give the example of my supplement cabinet. I love to have everything lined up, categorize labels forward. And if my husband comes and moves it and the label slightly turns sideways, I just notice it right away. So you know, visual spatial changes, really good at problem solving systems and like seeing waste and efficiency. But this can lead to issues like road rage or OCD, perfectionism, holding grudges, cognitive inflexibility, and really actually chronic pain and stress. Because again, this is part of that error detection system of that anterior cingulate gyrus. So that's just one of the six types that people can have as a strength, but also leads to overwhelm for them. Yeah. So it's mental, emotional, physical, chemical, social, and energetic. So interesting. When you talk about your system for working with people who are highly sensitive, is that something you can articulate for us? Yeah. I mean, really, it comes down to really identifying personally for that person, whether it's you're assessing them or they're doing a self-assessment. But, you know, going through this process of where have they experienced overwhelm in their life? Have they been big T, little T traumas? Have they been slowly over time or all of a sudden? And then seeing what categories they fall under. Are they, is it like a sort of mental, emotional, physical, chemical, social, or energetic thing? Because then you can really start to match the modalities or the therapies or build a team for them around unwinding some of this and having that become resilience and strength for them. So, you know, this really looks like any blend of doing functional medicine, root cause, kind of like we talked about that young stuff of lab testing, data-driven stuff, approaching it with nutrition, supplement, herbs, lifestyle, but also looking at bringing in some of those other things like body work, lymphatic drainage, chiropractic, massage, acupuncture, brain balancing exercises through functional neurology. And then, you know, bringing in these adjunctive things like light therapy. When I talk about that energetic sensitivity, we didn't really get to it, but sensitive people are really sensitive to more subtle therapies. So light therapy, really low vibration type of things, even doing energy medicine. So anything from Reiki or like energy psychology techniques that use meridians or chakras like EFT tapping, or, you know, there's a couple of those types of techniques that are really potent and powerful for sensitive people because they need to dispel those overwhelms from their mind, body, spirit. So important and really just informative on so many levels, Dr. Natasha. If there was one thing that you wish you could impart to all clinicians that would kind of wake us up as a community to better serving the sensitive client or patient, what would that be? I think it would just be understanding that when you see somebody who has a lot of symptoms, diagnosis, a lot of supplements in a bag, or, you know, they've had 
the kind of an experience that you can see is overwhelming for them, think of them as a canary in a coal mine. And that it's not that they're doing something wrong or they're, you know, they're just kind of trying to navigate their own sensitivity in a system that has not seen or recognized them. So that idea of helping them find their strengths and look for things for them to lean on as they unwind this and build up for themselves is super important because the devalidation of, I think, sensitive people in healthcare is one of the most detrimental things for their long-term prognosis. Brilliantly said. Thank you so much, Dr. Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 